All right, if everybody wants to stand as we read Pastor Nick's text for this morning, for his sermon, it's found in Luke 15, just seven verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. All right. Well, welcome to church. It's good to see you all today. Uh, it really is. It's good to be together uh, at church this morning. We are halfway to Easter, right? So we have this week and the next week, and then the, so two weeks from now, here's a better way of explaining this, two weeks from now is Palm Sunday, and then Easter. Uh, Easter is one of those celebrations that kind of sneaks up on us, par partially because it is never predictable as to when it is. My iPhone reminded me of, I think, three years ago, we had an early Easter on, like, this, this Sunday, so uh, it'll, when things were a lot colder and the grass wasn't green, but this year we're going to have green grass, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt. Hopefully it'll be a little bit warmer than this premature winter that we're getting here this week. Uh, I like I said to somebody this morning, I, you know, usually March goes out like a lamb and it's going out like a lion this year. So uh, we are in a sermon series we're calling On the Road, which is all about tracking Jesus's progression as he as the gospel of Luke tells us, he sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. Jesus does almost all of his ministry along the road as he finds his way to Jerusalem and to the cross and to his uh, primary purpose and calling as the Messiah. But as he goes along the road, he teaches. And as he teaches along the road, we are called as his disciples, as people who are both literally and kind of figuratively in this analogy, following him on the road. He teaches us what it means to be his disciple. And this week, we hear a parable that Jesus gives to tax collectors about what it means to be lost. But more than that, I think he gives us a picture of the heart of God. You see, this, this parable comes in a series of parables in Luke 15 of lost things. So the, you'll have the story of the lost sheep, you have the story of the lost coin, you have the story of the lost son, the story we very often refer to as the story of the prodigal son. But in all of these stories, we see a depiction of God's heart for his people. You see, God is after his people, and not in a bad way, not in a bounty hunter kind of way, but in, an, but in a way that, that should compel us and speak to our hearts about God's gracious, seeking, and searching love for each of us. Now, the truth of the matter is, and I believe this wholeheartedly, 
that until we come to this full realization of God's gracious, loving, seeking heart for each and every one of us, I don't think we're going to practice our faith of following Jesus out of the right place. You see, so many of us are motivated, I think, not by this vision of God's loving, gracious, and searching love for us. Rather, we're motivated out of a place of kind of obligation, right? We're motivated out of a place of shame, many of us. Many of us are motivated by the law or by fear. This sense that if we don't do what God wants us to do in some sense, we're going to get in trouble, right? It's like my dad is looking over my shoulder, and if I don't do the right stuff, well then, I'm going to get detention or something. I mixed metaphors there between school and home, but you can just roll with me, all right? But I I truly believe that parables like this that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke are meant to kind of sink down into our hearts and to show us, reveal to us actually, the way in which God's love is gracious to us, not overbearing, not vindictive, but gracious. And this tends to work itself out in our daily lives as well. You see, when the grace of God or the revelation of God's grace and love for us, his orientation towards us really comes to bear in our lives, what we find is that we get, begin to walk through life less stressfully, less stressfully, less burdened by the pressures and measures of this life. You see, for most of us, life is stressful. All of us, I will say, life is stressful, right? For, for all of us, life is very often about this kind of internal measuring stick that we have in our minds. You can call it the law, or you can call it whatever you want, but it's this, it's this measure by which we determine whether or not we are measuring up, right? Do I work hard enough? That's the one for me, right? I come from like uh, very hardworking Dutch people, Right? And so they all, they all worked very hard. And so I always have this internal narrative in my brain when I get home in the evenings of, did I work hard enough today? Right? You see, this, it's this internal measuring stick. It's this voice in my head that says to me, am I measuring up? I don't know what that internal kind of voice is for you. Maybe for you, it's the, am I making enough money? Is my house the way it needs to be? Do people see me as successful, right? There's all of these ways that we have in our heads of justifying ourselves or wondering if we measure up. One of the ways that I tend to think about whether I'm measuring up is the state of my yard, or more specifically, the state of my grass, right? We have a dog. I, this isn't being recorded, right? I do not like my dog. Then the primary reason is that she ruins my grass, right? Because I have this desire, this sense in my heart that I need to have a nice yard. I need to have nice grass. I need to have it all together. I think my desire to have an orderly and nice yard is a kind of mental projection that I can send out into the world to tell everyone who drives by my house that Nick has a very nice yard. It is very well put together. His internal life must be the exact same as his yard, right? This is what I want people to think. This is, this is the internal measuring stick that I have. Are there seasonally, seasonably blooming flowers? Is the, is, the, is the picket fence fixed, right, the way it should be, which it is not right now, but I bought the lumber. The <laughs> you can see there's a neurosis here, can't you? 
You see, there's this impulse towards improvement, right, for me, that circles around my yard. There is, and there is this deep desire in my life, and I'm sure you can resonate with this as well, to improve things, right? To improve my standing in life, to improve, to improve my position, to improve my uh, retirement portfolio, whatever it is. And we, we are always measuring ourselves against these standards, if you grew up in church, it's possible that you're measuring yourself against a standard of sin, right? That was held up for you as a kind of measuring stick. Because in your, in your community or in, or in whatever religious tradition you came out of, there were the good people who measure up and then there were the bad people who don't, right? And so internally, you're always going, am I measuring up? Am I measuring up? Am I measuring up? You see, we all have this way of being. But the primary problem with this way of doing things is twofold. One, our measurements of ourselves or the external measurements that culture kind of places on us are never actually going to get us to the place that we want them to, right? We will always fall short, both of our expectations for ourselves as well as other people's expectations for ourselves. But the other problem is that these senses of measurement are almost never driven by love, are they? They're almost always driven by fear, expectation, or judgment. There's never in these things uh, a gracious invitation into a new way of life. It's rather a kind of measuring stick that is held up against me in order to make me better, more acceptable. And when we get right down to it at like the very base level, the fear is that if I don't measure up in these ways, I will not be loved, right? the baseline assumption in each of our hearts. And it's the baseline assumption in a pharisaical religious mindset that Jesus is addressing in this parable, isn't it? That if we aren't the types of Pharisees that we're supposed to be, if we don't measure up, if we don't, um, if we don't live up to the, all the standards of the law and then the other standards that we put on top of the law, well then, we're just going to be sinners like those people, right? And this is what the Pharisees uh, address in Jesus's life as he spends time with sinners. You see, when, the, when he is asked by these Pharisees, what, what are you doing? Why are you spending this time with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' response is not what they would have expected. You see, in Jesus' day, to be a Pharisee was to be one who checked all of the boxes of measuring up to all of the religious standards. There was no end to, re to, the, to the rules that Pharisees thought that they needed to live up to. And they did this thing that overly religious people often do, which is they aren't just satisfied with measuring up in their own lives. They al also have to set themselves over and against other people, right? Because you... It's not, good, it's not good enough that I measure up in every way, shape, and form. I also got to look at the people who, for whom I think I am better and then say to those people, fix your life, buddy, right? Get it figured out, sinner. And we don't say that to those people internally, right? Because none of us would ever say this out loud, correct? We all say this internally because it makes us feel like the work we've done is it is enough even though that we know that it's not, right? It makes us feel righteous, self-justified, even though we know that our internal efforts will never make up for the lack that we have inside. You see, the Pharisees were constantly judging 
setting themselves up as righteous, trying to convince the people that were in their kind of sphere of influence that they did more than everybody else and that they were good in God's eyes. But then Jesus begins to tell these parables of lost things. And specifically, the parable of the lost sheep that we read about here today is meant to contrast the religious self-justifying, I would take a pie, justify, please, uh, justifying impulse of the Pharisees. You see, if Jesus is telling this story correctly, or if we're reading it correctly this morning, that the, the prerequisite that the Pharisees set up of, of, ju- of self-justification, of rules, of laws, of measuring up, isn't what it's all about. You see, Jesus sets up quite clearly that his role, his responsibility, or God's heart towards all people, tax collectors and sinners alike, is to find them. You see, and what we learn from this passage of Scripture is that to be lost is to make yourself available to the saving power of Jesus. You see, do you feel like you don't measure up? Do you feel like all the efforts that you put in to try and measure up, all of the righteousness, all the religious behaviors that you partake in in order to make yourself feel like you're doing the things you're supposed to do inevitably fall short? Does the weight of self-improvement have a kind of burdensome, like, pressure in your life that weighs you down? Good. Good. God's got you right where he wants you. It is the self-justifying, Instagram-famous, perfect people of this world that are the Pharisees of our time. And it is that impulse in each and every one of our hearts that creates in us a pharisaical spirit. You see, we are not perfect. We are broken. We are silly people, each and every one of us. And we are in need of something and someone outside of us to literally save us. And when Jesus tells us this parable of the lost sheep, I believe we are supposed to see ourselves as the sheep in need of rescue. But in our day, too many of us act like Pharisees. You see, the truth of this parable is that Jesus was saying that those who he was spending time with, the tax collectors and sinners, were actually in a better position than the Pharisees were because they were in the precise opinion to be rescued by Jesus, but the Pharisees, who were just as, a, a, just as in need as all of these tax collectors and sinners, were unavailable to God's grace, specifically because they were unwilling to see themselves as though they were in need of God's grace. You see, it was their religiosity or their rule following that made them almost incapable of receiving the love that Jesus was talking about in this passage. And it made them incapable of loving other people as well, specifically the way that Jesus did. You see, we believe that in order to justify our our own existence, we must earn our way to a better life. But what if you came to the realization that you and I and everyone you've ever met are equally lost. That no amount of self-justifying behavior, 
graduate degrees, zeros on the end of our paychecks, will ever bring us to a place of complete fulfillment or purpose. But instead, we come to realize that Jesus, and here's the kicker, right? Jesus is the good shepherd, and that he will come and find us in our lostness and carry us home. You see, you don't need to measure up. Because Jesus longs to find you. And it is not until we are willing to accept that fact that we are in a position to receive it. You see, the point of the parable is that all of us are the one that Jesus goes, that the good shepherd goes after. The 99 are, is everybody who's in denial of the fact that they're in need of a good shepherd. And the point of this parable is that we are all in need of being found. So for most of us, what is required of us is not to clean ourselves up. It's not to make ourselves look like the type of people that are admirable or approachable or worthy. Rather, it is simply to admit in the midst of our situation here and now that we, too, are in need of God's loving, gracious affection. You see, this is what God is like when he looks at you, regardless of who you are and regardless of what sin there that resides in your life. When he looks at you, he sees someone he loves in need of saving. He, needs someone he, he sees someone he loves that is in need of his grace. And the only thing you and I need to do in order to access that grace is to admit that fact. And when grace arrives at our doorstep in that way, it is transformative. Uh, the writer and scholar Henry Nouwen puts it this way. He says, when I look through God's eyes at my lost self, and discover God's joy at my coming home, then my life may become less anguished and more trusting. I now see that the hands that forgive, console, heal, and offer a festive meal must become my own. You see, this tells me, right, that this, all the techniques for self-improvement that we try to enact in our lives don't work. We may be able to improve our lives in incremental ways, right? Yet you can start eating more healthily, and that might be good for you. Though, right now, I don't know what healthy eating is. Because you have people on one side that say all you should eat is a carnivore diet. So just eat like raw liver and maple syrup, and that's healthy. And then I have other people on, see, this is true, right? And then there's other people on this side saying you must eat a plant-based diet, and that's the only way to live a healthy life. And I don't know where <laughs> the truth is. So I'm just going to eat chips. Or as, or as my son Amos says, Pisces chips, Dad. I want Pisces chips because we like, we like uh, salt and vinegar chips in our family. But anyways, <laughs> did somebody moan? Salt and vinegar chips are delicious. Uh, though don't eat too many because you can't taste dinner if you have them before dinner. So here's the reality. Here's the reality, right? We are all in need of God's grace. 
We are all in need of his love. And for those of you in this place who have received God's grace, who have confessed your faith, who are Christians, we need to learn to walk in that. Too often we receive God's, the gift of salvation as grace, and then we walk in a law, right? Like the Bible, after we, after we come to Christ, the Bible is just this list of stuff we have to do in order to keep God on our side, right? Like he's gracious to us that one time, and then after that, well, everything's rule following from that point forward, right? No, the grace of God is this thing we depend on all of the time. And the character of God is one in which the grace and love of Jesus is always streaming towards us. You see, God is not this like bifurcated person, right? Who half the time he's mad at you about the sin you do, and then half the time he kind of likes you because you figured it out a little bit, right? The Bible tells us this is not what God is like in any way, shape, or form. God is always loving. Yes, God has wrath, and the scripture communicates that God gets angry and he has wrath. But that wrath is never against you. He loves you. His wrath is always against the things that are breaking and hurting you. His wrath is against sin, not against people. And so for us to assume that God is this like Jekyll and Hyde character who half the time is angry and half the time is happy and we just need to kind of figure out the ledgers in such a way as in order to keep him happy is just a wrong assumption. The love and grace of God is always invitational. And so we're always invited to live the life that Jesus leads us in, right? We're always invited into living a better life and a more flourishing life, right? And so there are things for us to do, but that is always an invitation, and it is always an invitation of grace, never of law, never of law. But if we don't understand this piece of God's character, if we don't understand that at the heart of the triune God, at the, at, at the heart of the creator of all of the cosmos, is both love, grace, and compassion for us, then we will always treat our faith in Jesus as a means of acquiring, right? We will always treat it like a religious ladder to climb. And we will never get to the top because we we're, we're broken and fallen and marred vessels, right? We'll never get there. But Jesus, praise be to God, is the good shepherd. And his love is always streaming towards us. Now, Notice that when Jesus goes to collect this one lost sheep, he doesn't do it begrudgingly, right? He's not like that dang sheep got away again. I got to go get him, right? This isn't, this isn't his posture. This isn't his behavior. If you look at verse 5, here's what we read. And when he finds it, the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Here is an idea that many of us don't see as the, at the forefront of our minds. Again, we often see God as being in some way angry at us, that his primary motivation towards us is anger, that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is not biblical, I would argue. You see, in order to fully love God volitionally from our hearts, we need to be able to receive and know this grace. 
We need to rest into it. We need to learn that God's love for us in Christ, even, and even his willingness to go after and get us, is always an act of joy, is always an act of joy. He does so joyfully. Jesus' Jesus's posture towards our lostness is joy. You see, many times we believe that God's posture towards us is wrath or anger, but it's simply not true. The scriptures tell us that it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the pain of the cross. And I believe that it was the joy of the resurrection, yes, but because Jesus knew that the cross was this great act of saving love that would redeem people and bring them back into relationship with him. And he loves the world. And he loves you. And so it is his joy to endure the shame and the brokenness and the sin of the world on the cross so that he could be reconciled to you. You see, it is, it is with joy that Jesus seeks us out and welcomes us home. God's grace is not about God's anger. It's about, it is about his joy. And when you truly discover that fact, when that truth begins to sink deeper and deeper into your heart, when the primary motivator in our heart is not fear of punishment, but is rather hope of God's loving embrace, then we cannot help but to turn to him in those moments. You won't be able to stop yourself from turning to God when you sin, when you fall, or when you don't know the way out of a given situation. When you know that God's posture and his orientation towards you is one of love and grace and joy, it makes it so easy to turn to him. You see, too often we're conditioned by our earthly situations, right? If something bad happens, what do we do? We cover it up for fear of reprisal, right? We hide, we hide the candy wrappers that we ate behind the bed so that our parents don't find them until they pull the bed out because they need to clean some dust bunnies because that's what dad does on Saturday night. And then we find like a year's supply of Starburst wrappers. Why do we do that? We do it because we're fearful of punishment, don't we? The same thing with sin. We, we sin and we hide from God because we believe that he is not gracious. Because we believe that he is not loving. Because we believe that if we turn to him, that, that what the response we will get from him is one of rejection and shame. But that is not the heart of God. You see, Jesus is a good shepherd. And even in the midst of your shame, in the midst of your running from God, in the midst of you turning your face away from him, he is looking for you. He is coming for you in the best possible way. And when you realize that, when it becomes the center of your relationship with God, it is utterly transformative. One writer puts it this way. He says, Jesus finds us in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, he puts us on his shoulders rejoicing and brings us home, band people come up. He 
finds us in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, he puts us on his shoulders rejoicing and brings us home. So this morning, the question that is kind of bouncing around in my heart and the question I want to pose to you is kind of twofold. First, have you been giving yourself over to that standard of measurement in your head where you're always judging yourself against other people or other things? I don't know what everyone is different, but and you're, you're just always trying to figure out if, you, if you've measured up trying to improve aspects of your life that just don't seem like they're improving as quickly as you want them to do to be things aren't things aren't kind things aren't just working quite right i think in that place jesus wants you to simply admit humbly that is the truth and that you're in need of his resurrection power and his grace and his love to come and fill your heart in such a way that you can know in the midst of that situation that you will never entirely measure up. But it is okay because you are entirely loved. And the second thing is for those of you in this place who have a vision of God that says he's vindictive, he's mad, he's wrathful, he's after people who do bad stuff, and he's after you want to tell you that is a popular religious notion and I can understand why it happens because we, we see pictures of God as angry in the Bible but God's anger in the scriptures is never vindictive it's always restorative it's always restorative it's never like my anger when my kid spills the milk and I'm just mad for no reason right God's anger is always restorative it's always redemptive and when we it in the scriptures, we see it as a refining fire, something that clears away the sin and the, and the death that holds us down and renews us in our hearts. Not that, not that its intention is purely to punish. It's not only punitive. And so this morning, I'm convinced that there are many of us, I know this because this is in the back of my head, who have a faulty vision of God. You don't have your primary default setting when you think about God is not a God of grace, is not a good shepherd, but is rather a God who is kind of always waiting, right, to get you. I just want to tell you pastorally, that's not what God is like. He does invite you into a different way of living than the way you're living. He does. He does invite you away from sin towards life, all because he loves you but you will never be perfect. But his love and his grace will always be perfect and always there. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing our new song one more time this morning. And if you're in this place, and either you've struggled with that measurement in your head, or you're in this place and you have a faulty image of God, as we sing and worship God, as we conclude our our service today, I would just ask you to hold that up to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you reform my vision of you? Would, would you reform the kind of pharisaical standards-driven reality that is, that is always in my mind? And would you help me to come to a fuller, more beautiful, more gracious revelation of you? Would 
I learned, full stop, that you are a good shepherd and that you seek me out in the midst of my brokenness. Amen? Amen. Let's sing. for your unmerited favor towards us, your grace. We thank you that Jesus is a good shepherd, that he comes after us even when we run, are running away from him. Jesus, we give you praise and glory and honor because you're worthy. Because you're worthy. Because you're worthy. Would you cement this truth in our hearts, God, that you're a good shepherd, and that you're gracious towards us and that you come after us not to accuse us but because you want to put us on your shoulders and bring us to a big party. 
would you cement that truth in our hearts this morning? And would you help us to go from this place in joy, rejoicing, knowing of your grace and of your love? We thank you. We thank you, Lord. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen and amen. Well, thanks for being at church today. It's good to see you. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.